The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. The Tamil poet Subramania Bharati modernized and rejuvenated the poetry of his people, so much so that they call him simply the Mahakavi, or Supreme Poet. Simple terms, simple style, simple meter, popular melodies, the poet who combines these in a modern epic breathes fresh life into our Tamil language, he said. Through his spiritual seekings, his intellectual engagement, and his practical and pragmatic ideas for social reform, he became one of India's great literary figures. Subramania Bharati, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. We've been preview. Oh, wait, sorry. I'm a bad host, not introducing myself. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. And a few more thanks to give some big ones. Uh, thanks, a big thanks to our Patreon account members, those saints on earth. Thank you. Thank you. Including our new Patreons, Shalize, Zachary, Chad, Carl, James, Beverly, and Sabren. Our hearts are full with gratitude, thanks to your generosity and kindness, and to all of our patrons. If you'd like to support the show with a small monthly contribution, we are at patreon.com slash literature. Or if you're a one-time-only kind of person, you can buy me a virtual coffee or two at historyofliterature.com slash shop. Thank you very much. Speaking of supporting the show... We have a new number one to report. Bahrain has made us the number one books podcast, according to Apple and the good folks at Chartable. Thank you very much to literature fans in the Persian Gulf for pushing us to that peak position of number one, especially those of you in the kingdom of Bahrain. I have not visited there before, but I hope to get the chance one day. And speaking of travel, this is a treat today. We are headed to India and traveling back in time a bit to the early 20th century, the years of British occupation, Subramania Bharati was born in 1882 in Tamil Nadu and educated in Varanasi, among other places. He showed an early aptitude for music and poetry and learning languages. His mother died when he was young, age five, and his father pushed him to study math and engineering. But literature was his gift and his calling. He absorbed whatever poetry and philosophy he could find in Sanskrit, Hindi, Telugu, English, French, and some Arabic. When he was 15, he was married to his wife, Chalama, who was only seven. His father died the following year. As a young man, Bharati was a teacher and a poet, eventually a court poet, and he became a journalist to reach a wider audience. He was also a great learner, a seeker, both in spiritual matters and the practical lives of his fellow Indian residents. He jumped into controversy, the Indian independence movement, and was imprisoned and exiled. He began to write poems and songs in Tamil, and before his death at age 38, he can be fairly said to have completely revivified Tamil literature. 
his poetic works suffused with his deep and abiding humanity and interest in religion and culture of India and the world have made him one of India's leading literary lights. We will be speaking with an expert in Bharati to learn more about who he was, what he stood for, how his genius manifested itself, and the new book, The Coming Age. We'll have that whole story after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Mira T. Sundara Rajan, who's here to discuss a new book she's edited. It's a commemoration of the 100th death anniversary of C. Subramania Bharati, whose work as a poet and prose writer ignited a renaissance in modern Tamil writing. This book is called The Coming Age, and it collects Bharati's important English writings. Professor Sundara Rajan, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here, Jack. Okay, and as I mentioned before we began, feel free to jump in and correct any pronunciations. I am doing my best, but uh, I know I am pronunciation challenged. Okay, so let's start with Tamil literature and its long tradition. I know it's got claims to be uh, basically a, an ancient civilization, a, sort of along the, I guess you could compare it with, with Greece and Rome, and we're going back a few thousand years here, aren't we? Yes, absolutely. I know historians often refer to Tamil as the last surviving classical civilization, hmm. and I think that's what's special about Tamil civilization and the Tamil language, not only the antiquity, but the fact that there's a, a continuity from the classical era of the civilization up until the present time. And that's quite a fascinating thing. I'll give you one example there. Uh, people who learn Tamil today, when they study grammar, they actually rely upon a 2,000-year-old grammar book, if you can imagine. Wow. It's called Tolhapiam. <laughs> Tolhapiam is the name of the book. And that gives you an idea of the historical continuity that's involved when we're talking about the Tamil language and literature. Right. So what was Tamil literature like prior to the 19th century? 
What did it consist of? Well, my understanding is that there were periods that were extremely rich in Tamil literary history, Mm -hmm. uh, going, you know, up to what we would call the medieval period, so the 12th, 13th centuries and so on. But then after that, there was a sort of tapering off of the literary productions. And by the time the British came to India, there was a period of decline that got greatly accelerated and exaggerated under the conditions Mm -hmm. of British rule, you know, perhaps not so surprising. So I wanted to read you a little passage here. This is actually from the previous publication of Bharati's English writings in a collection, in a book. Mm -hmm. And the editors there actually write a little bit about this in a very beautiful way. So they say in the foreword to the book, for the last 100 years, the Tamil genius has not expressed itself at its real best in any department of life much less on the creative side in song and literature. The reasons are many, both political and sociological. Creative artists like Subramanya Bharati are like oases in the desert, as if the endless waste of sand gets wearied of itself and produces a spot of green for the sheer joy of reaction. And the authors of that piece are C.R. Reddy and K.S. Venkatamani in the Mm. previous edition of the English writing. But I think that sort of captures the feeling of what the landscape was when Subramanian Bharati came onto the scene. You know, it was a very depressed, discouraged landscape where there hadn't been a lot of outstanding productions for quite a while. You know, we're talking decades and even centuries. And I can tell you one other thing, too, which is quite fascinating, which is that by the time the 19th century came around, certain particular kinds of ills were afflicting Tamil literature. And I've heard all, all about this from my mother, who was a specialist in Tamil literature. That's actually what she studied and did for her, her life as a scholar. Mm-hmm. But she talked about how the literature of that period became excessively formalized. And so people were, rather than concentrating on the substance of what they were writing or on trying to innovate new forms, they were sort of getting stuck in conventions of the past and they were becoming more and more elaborate and absurd. Mm. You know, even things like emphasizing how a poem looks on the page, you know, which of course can be part of the literary production. You've got someone like Gerard Manley Hopkins, for example, who might do that in English. But, you know, but that becoming, that kind of consideration becoming sort of the primary stick by which you would measure literary productions. Whereas, innovation was taking a backseat. And of course, content was was enormously taking a backseat. Right. So it was a time of decline. Well, I feel like that leads us into the question of Bharati and how he swept things away, because my understanding is that he sort of breathed new life into it. But before we get there, I just wanted to ask what the Tamil literature was like in its heyday. Were these devotional poems or or hymns, or epic verse, or what kind of classic literature was coming out of Tamil literature in the when it was at its strongest? That's a fantastic question. And I'll make two comments about Tamil literature in that context. One is that I think as you already have a sense, you know, the Indian culture is one where spirituality and so on has a very integral part in the development of all of the arts. Mm-hmm. And of course, In Western culture as well, that was true at a certain point in time. So it's not a concept that's totally foreign, I don't think, for uh, those of your listeners who are more familiar with Western literature. 
So yes, that whole aspect of devotional writing and so on, philosophy driven by devotional considerations, that was definitely present in Tamil literature in its heyday. But secondly, even more than that, Tamil is known as the language of epics. Mm. And this is where Tamil writers excelled as writers of epic poetry. And I believe there are five such epics, in fact, emanating from different religious traditions too. So you have authors who are Hindu, who are Jain as well. Mm-hmm. And Bharati, in a sense, continued that tradition in one very important way, because he also wrote an epic. Mm. And so and this is one of the the ways in which he's known is as the author of a modern Tamil epic. And I can talk a little bit more about that whenever you're you're ready for me to do that. Mm. Well, let's talk about him now. So there was this rich tradition and in Tamil mm-hmm. literature. And I, sh- I should tell you, I sort of encountered this briefly years and years ago where I had this friend who was telling me she was uh, of Indian background and she was telling me that her grandfather used to always say, well, you know, you're not Indian, you're Tamil. And I asked her what he meant by that. And she said, he's so proud of the education, the literacy, the culture, and the literature, the tradition of literature. And it made me kind of curious about where Tamil and the Tamil culture stands in relationship with the rest of India. Is my friend's grandfather unusual, or is that a commonly held view? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I don't think your friend's grandfather is unusual. There is definitely a sense of Tamil identity and Tamil pride. Maybe mm-hmm. where I would take issue with him a little bit is in drawing a dichotomy between being a Tamil and being Indian. I, I don't think that Subramanian Bharati saw things that way at all. Mm-hmm. You know, he saw the Tamils as being an integral part of the overall mosaic of Indian culture. And I think that's a good way of understanding the place of Tamil culture and Tamil literature in the Indian context too, because India is an incredibly diverse place. Mm. And that's something that we always have to keep in mind. You know, we're talking a country where there are something like 18 official languages at this point. And, you know, each one of those languages has its own rich literary tradition in its own way. Mm-hmm. Now, Tamil, Tamil has a certain pride of place there because the cultures of South India have a certain antiquity. You know, in the north, there were lots of historical interruptions due to invasions and to the accessibility of the northern part of the country to outsiders. I mean, relative accessibility. You know, people still had to cross the Himalayas to get into India, but South India is still more remote. And there's mm-hmm. another, you know, there's a, another chain of mountains that runs across the Indian subcontinent that isolates South India a bit from the north. So I think that's a good way of thinking about the place of, of Tamil culture and literature in India. It's a place where, in a sense, some of the oldest roots of the Indian culture can be found. And in fact, of world culture can be found. Mm-hmm. And they grew and developed there for a long time and then intermingled with the rich influences coming from all over the subcontinent. So there is that sort of beautiful duality. There is a unique 
culture that belongs to the Tamils, but it's also deeply integrated into the culture of the country as a whole. And that's something really important to be aware of when you think about Indian identity. Indians themselves maybe don't don't think about these things enough, to be honest. Mm. You know, but there is a very diverse identity, which is what it means to be Indian, I think. Right. And he seems like just by disposition to have been kind of the opposite of insular and territorial and inward looking. He's, he spoke several languages and he seems like he had such a broad outlook on the world and life and, and culture mm-hmm. that he would have been more expansive than kind of shrinking into the past or shrinking into just one narrow definition of himself. But let, let me let you talk about him. Who was he and, and what was he writing and how did he change uh, world literature. Well, I just love the way that you introduced that, uh, Jack. And I actually I can't do any better than no, that myself, okay. to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when when you say that he was the opposite of insular, that pretty much captures it in a nutshell. Yeah. And it's really interesting to look at his biography because I think there are clues there, or at least resonances that help us to understand why he became a pan-Indian figure and a pan-Indian nationalist. Mm -hmm. Um, It's because he was born in South India, but then he traveled for his education to Banaras, or uh, Varanasi, as it's also known, you know, the ancient Mm -hmm. city of Sanskrit tradition and so on. And while he was there, he learned Uh, Hindi and Sanskrit and became totally conversant in those languages, if you can be conversant in a classical language. But he became very familiar with the culture of that place and with the sort of broader perspective on his own identity as an Indian that the association with Banatis gave him. While he was there, something important happened to him, which is that he got some fashion ideas so he basically changed his appearance when he was in Banaras. He grew this mustache, which is a very famous mm, part of his, yeah. <laughs> his the image of his yep. face. He started wearing the turban. You know, generally South Indians don't wear turbans. It's a typically North Indian form of dress. And he started wearing this, this big jacket that made him look like a you know, more hefty, powerful, uh, muscular person than perhaps he really was. And he was staying with relatives at the time and they were completely scandalized by this transformation occurring in this young man, you know, a teenager at the time, uh, that here he was, you know, turning into one of these uh, strange sort of local Varanasi fellows. And there was no recognizing him anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and sure enough, this, this guise that he adopted while he was in Banaras is one that he wore throughout his life. You know, when he when he was on his deathbed, he knew that he was dying and he actually got up and dressed himself in that outfit and lay down to pass away. Mm. So it was such an integral part of, of his identity. And that's just, you know, a way of illustrating or symbolizing the extent to which he integrated his experiences in the northern part of India into his South Indian identity. Right. So, to go back then to your wonderful question, what kind of person was he? Well, he was a person shaped by experiences of living and traveling all over India, of studying her languages and literatures from his perspective as a Tamil and also from this broader perspective of the languages and literatures that occupied the subcontinent. 
He was also someone who was incredibly curious about European literature and languages. He was a total polyglot, really mm. enjoyed learning languages and, and reading. So he became familiar, deeply familiar with English literature, with French literature to an extent, you know, because he lived in a French territory for uh, more than a decade, a very long part of his life, given that he only lived to be 39. And, you know, so he was a person who developed this very broad perspective, as you say, very much the opposite of insular, broad perspective on India, broad perspective on the world. And he saw himself as an Indian who was also in a phrase that's now hackneyed, but I think it applies very well to him in its essence, the idea of being a citizen of the world. Mm. You know, this was truly how he saw himself. And it's worth noting one more thing, Jack, because he was very advanced in his views. I mean, he was visionary in in his views and in this sort of universalist perspective that he brought to his thinking about things. But in fact, many of the important writers and thinkers of his generation, you know, people like Tagore, people like Gandhi to an extent, they had that sort of breadth of perspective. Hmm. So they had a very large idea of what it meant to be Indian and to be an Indian in the contemporary world. So in that sense, he was at the avant-garde of his generation as well, and he expressed the best of his generation, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Well, there's a couple things that I wanted to ask you about, and I'll maybe I'll mm. just mention them both. I want to ask about his relationship or his, his positions toward British rule, and also his strong advocacy of women's rights. Both those seem to be where he was mm. very forward-looking. Yeah, absolutely. You know, his position on British rule was that the British needed to leave India. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, very, very simple at that level. But it gets a lot more interesting when you think about the philosophical implications of that position, which he did. You know, one of the unique characteristics of him as a writer and thinker, I think, is the way he thought in so much depth about the various positions that he took on things. You know, he had that he had that clarity of mind that allowed him to think propositions through to their logical conclusions. Mm. And so for him, you know, as a person who adopted certain philosophical positions, actually drawn from ancient Indian philosophy, positions about, you know, the equality of all beings, the sanctity of life, and so on. The end point of a lot of those propositions was that one group of people, or in fact, one individual, should not be exerting power over another. Mm. And that was, of course, the basis on which the British were present in India. It was, uh, frankly, and, and this is something that people conveniently seem to forget nowadays, but it was frankly about subjugating the local population for the purpose of extracting resources from that population. You know, there, there's nothing complicated about what was happening there in that sense. And he saw it. Right. And they, they dressed it up with uh, justifications and to say, well, we're, we're, we're bringing education or we're bringing the modern world or we're, we're supplying yeah. uh, organization or the rule of law that they couldn't do for themselves. And, and Bharati just seems to have said, mm -hmm. that's just not true. And what's the point? Why are you here? What's the, you're not needed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a very interesting point, because I think British rule in India can kind of be subdivided into two large periods. You know, there was the first period when the East India Company went to India and discovered 
the resources available there and also discovered the sort of power vacuum that was starting to come up in the subcontinent, which allowed them to gain a foothold. And eventually, obviously, the association became so lucrative that they ended up turning over the ownership of India to the British crown. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of the first century or so. But then in the second part of British rule, which is when Bharati comes into the picture, at that point, there were lots of sort of moral discussions starting to occur about the British presence in India. One of the reasons for that is very interesting, is because um, scholars in Western countries, notably in Germany, but also in England, they were starting to uncover clues about India's past and about the links between Indian culture and European culture. And they were discovering things like the fact that Sanskrit is linked to all European languages and, in fact, is an older classical language like uh, Greek and Latin, in fact, older than those languages in terms of the history of Indo-European languages. So all of a sudden, mm. there's this link between English and German and Sanskrit. And it became more and more difficult as these facts emerged to try to argue that the Europeans were culturally superior and therefore had business in India trying to civilize, you know, those people down there in the subcontinent. Mm. And I think the interesting thing that, that happened is that a lot of people in England, notably, became very concerned as knowledge of India was spreading, that here was something that England was doing that they shouldn't be doing. Mm. And at that point, as, as moral questions arose, then moral justifications needed to be brought into play. You know, this is this is my basic understanding. And that's where you see all those debates starting at the end of the 19th century about, you know, the English, whether they're bringing education to India, whether they're improving the status of women and so on. Let me let me just cut to the chase there and say they weren't, you know, having actually studied that from the perspective of the things they tried to do in terms of law reform and so on. In many cases, those so-called reforms actually represented regressions on traditional models in Indian society. That's maybe a discussion for another day. Mm. Uh, but for our purposes, that whole sort of moral attempt or attempt to morally justify the presence of the British on Indian soil was an integral part of that second period of empire. And right. that's where Bharati got grist for his mill, because he studied his own traditions and he was in a position to say to the British, well, actually, you don't really know who we are. We know who we are. And this is what I'm going to write about. And I'm going to remind Indians and inform you about who we are so that you understand that you don't belong here on the grounds on which you say you do. So it's a very clear agenda. And he lived in exile for about 10 years, if I understand correctly. Was that mm. because of his writings about British rule? <laughs> Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And he actually writes about this as well. He explains how his writings became a source of discomfort for the administrators in South India. And at that time, Madras province was one of the major British outposts in India. We should keep that in mind, too. So what ended up happening is his writing got prescribed, meaning that it couldn't be published hmm. in British India. And the police were also pursuing him and trying to get him captured on the basis of charges, you know, many of which were trumped up. Again, he writes about this and explains why those particular charges were false and so on. So he essentially was in a position where he was trying to evade capture by the British police, and that was untenable for him. So 
he ended up leaving and going to Pondicherry, which was a French governed territory just on the border of then Madras province. So just in the same area, it's probably, you know, four or five hours drive from Madras today or Chennai today, just to give you an idea of where that's located mm-hmm. along the coast. Mm-hmm. And when he went there, he was joining with a whole community of exiles from all over India, you know, people like him who were fighting for India's freedom, who found that they had to leave British soil because they were not free to operate there anymore. And so they went to Pondicherry. Mm. Now, was he, I just want to make sure I understand uh, his writings and and how it led to his exile and, and so on. And also, we haven't mm. talked yet about his the term that's used for him, Mahakavi, or Supreme Poet. Was he somebody who was a, a successful and famous poet and that gave him a platform that he then used to uh, criticize British rule or were his works about British rule that that made him the supreme poet was it were they separate or were mm-hmm. they are we talking about the same writings yeah we're talking about the same writings and mm-hmm. uh, that's a great point because what happened his writings were becoming very popular among people in south india and that's an interesting thing too because the nationalistic poems that he wrote, many of them he also composed as melodies to be sung. Mm. And that's one of the ancient traditions in Indian literature, that poetry and music form a single art form. And he was very gifted as a composer as well. So people would learn and sing his songs. You know, they're very catchy tunes. Once you hear it, you you remember it. Mm. And his songs were essentially heard all over South India. And he himself was to say about himself that he knew that his popularity was unrivaled as a writer in South India. You know, so he did achieve that status while he was alive, and in fact, fairly early in his compositional career. Mm. And so that then played into his works getting outlawed, because the British saw that they were significant, and they were playing a role in stirring up nationalist sentiment. So they wanted mm. to to tamp that down. It's a good old fashioned censorship, right? And they were also they were also innovative uh, poetically and artistically. They were. I don't know if he was mm. hearkening back to a an age or a, a type of writing kind of before this stultification had set in, or if he was doing something completely new using a vernacular, or what what exactly made it so. Other than he was very good at it, what what about it made it so popular with the masses? What a fantastic question. So he, I would call him an innovator. Mm-hmm. And what he tried to do and, and did very successfully was he tried to take the forms of spoken Tamil and elevate them into poetry, into the literary language. And I should explain mm. a little bit what I mean about that. So Tamil is a language that has sort of two distinct branches, one being the everyday sort of spoken language, the other one being the language as it's written. And over the years, over the centuries, there's been quite a bit of divergence between the two. So just because you speak Tamil doesn't mean necessarily that you would be able to understand the forms and the structures of written Tamil, because there is a great gap between those two. So what Bharati did, he tried to bring the the expressions, the forms, the rhythms of the language as people spoke it every day. And that too 
you know, he looked at the kind of so-called lower members of society when he did that. Those were the people that he derived the language from, you know, people who would be selling things, people who would be in the markets, people who would be walking Mm. in the streets. He wasn't looking at some sort of elite to try to find his poetic language. He was really getting it from what he thought of as the core, the cultural core of the people. And he took it and he elevated it into the poetic forms. Now, in that sense, he was very much a traditionally educated Tamil poet because he was deeply read in the Tamil poetry of the past. And then he also studied the literature of Sanskrit, as I explained, given his education in the capital of the Sanskrit language, Varanasi or Banaras. So he was deeply steeped in the aesthetics and in the culture of the past, but then he put that into a modern form by drawing upon the spoken language of every day. You know, I'll give you one example. There's um, a poem where he writes about the future, and the speaker in that poem is a, a beggar, meaning a person who would go, you know, from door to door collecting alms. and uh, he calls him Gudu Gudu Pandi is the name, just in case you have any uh, listeners in Tamil, they might recognize that. And he has a little drum that he shakes for rhythm. And Bharati writes the words in Tamil. He writes, What that means is the good times are coming. But the very expression, it's just an expression that anyone would say on the street. You know, you could be walking in the street somewhere in some village in South India, and someone might be talking about the future and say, you see, so he's Mm -hmm. taken that actual spoken language and integrated it into a literary expression. And I think this is why ultimately he's called a Mahakavi. And this is a point that people debate all the time. But to me, this is the essence of it, that he, he took the words, the thoughts, the emotions of ordinary people, and he elevated them into poetry he gave them a voice and a noble voice at that. So he gave them dignity and status at a time when the British were depriving them of that. You know, we're, we're telling them, you people are no good. Your culture is no good. It's not as good as ours. We're here to dominate you, to make you into something different. And his poetry mm. rejects that. And it does it in this particular way by ennobling the everyday speech of the ordinary person. Mm. And that, that, to me, is a really profound contribution. That's why we call him Mahakavi. Mm. Let's take a quick break and then come back with more about Bharati. We're going to find out about his forward-looking positions on women, and then we have a surprise for our listeners. Okay, we're back. So we had talked about this earlier, that he was a proponent of the dignity of all humans, and that that obviously came into play with his attitude toward the British, who were then ruling India. But it also extended to women, which in fact, some of his views I found even more surprising than his political views. In some ways, I wasn't too surprised by how he viewed British rule, but I was actually kind of surprised by 
how just how far he went when it came to his views on women. So what was what was he an advocate for? And where did it come from? Oh, okay. Yeah, you're quite right to say that is what I was about to to start off with. Hmm. Because his position on women was not that women were equal to men. His position was that women were superior to men. Hmm. And he had he had very logical reasons for why he held that position because he he writes about this actually in the collection of essays and in his English writings as well. He writes that women play the role of civilizing mankind. Mm. And he says that they are ultimately the ones that preserve the culture and the civilization and then take the primary responsibility for communicating that to future generations. Mm. So it's that role in relation to the culture that he sees as giving a certain kind of primacy to women, primacy in the sense of a leadership role in society. And that was his vision. He felt that women should be exercising a leadership role. They should be involved in the writing of laws, for example. That's something he explicitly talks about. They should be the ones involved in developing policies and taking the society forward. And so not only should they not be taking a backseat, which was extremely the case during his times in India, but they should assume this leadership role and that by doing so, things would be made better for everyone. Right. So he wasn't just saying, look, we're losing half of our our population here. There's more that women can contribute. There was something specifically about women that made him want to put them in these positions was it was he basing it on biology and and the fact that they're they're mothers or was it something about personality or what 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 was mm. his or religion what was he drawing on in order to make that claim yeah no i i don't think that it was necessarily drawing upon biology he definitely did see all women as mothers Mm-hmm. But I think that was much more in a in a spiritual sense. Mm-hmm. You know, his own guru, for example, was a, a woman, Sister Nivedita, you know, an Irish woman who had come to India as a follower of Swami Vivekananda. And then she inspired Bharati a lot in terms of women's rights and women's education. But she herself was a celibate woman. You know, she was not a, a married woman or, a you know, a woman who'd had a family in that sense. So I think the the idea of motherhood to him extends far beyond biology. And in fact, that, that squares with his view of humanity because his, his view of humanity wasn't in the more narrow sense of families as we might typically understand that. You know, he literally saw all humanity as being brothers and sisters, mm. you know, as being related in that, in that very deep spiritual way. So, Yes, I think the idea of the mother was really important to him, but more in the spiritual than in a biological sense. And I think the the reason that he saw women's role in the way that he did, it was more an observation of what they'd been doing in the past. Isn't that ironic? Mm. Because women had been so oppressed in the past, and yet, in spite of that, he saw them as being the ones who were the keepers of tradition and culture. And it was something that I think he must have observed in his life in South India. A lot of his ideas were born from, you know, from his experience and from his observation as well as from his reading. So I think that's really at the root of things that, uh, you know, that he saw women playing this active role in preserving, in cultivating 
and in nourishing in that sense the people and the society that was going on around him. So he extended that to, right. you know, to its kind of furthest logical progression. I'm just going to try to respond to your second question because, uh, you know, that was very interesting. You said, well, where did he get these ideas on yeah. women from? And, you know, that's such a difficult question to answer. I was recently talking about this book to a group of my students at uh, the University of California, Davis. And uh, one of my students asked this question in a slightly different form. He said, wow, Bharati sounds like such an amazing person. How did he become like that? Especially given the negatives in the environment at the time. Mm -hmm. And I can provide explanations for that. Going back to your question now, you know, I can say that, well, Bharati lost his mother when he was very young. And the absence of that figure from his life probably played a role in helping him to understand at a very personal level how important women were. Mm. You know, I can talk about the religion as well, sure, because, you know, as as many of your listeners might know or might not know, the so-called Hindu religion is actually a very diverse set of beliefs. And one of the sects within that system of belief is mother worship. They call it the worship of Shakti. Ashaktas, they're called, mm. those who practice that particular branch of Hinduism. And Bharati definitely self-identified as a Shakta. So I could bring that in and say, well, the tradition of mother worship informed Bharati, and that's why he had this position on women. And all of that would be true. But I do think that there's also a mystery at the heart of this question. And in fact, at the heart of his greatness overall. You know, at some level, we can't really explain why he turned out to have the particular views that he did. There's something there. What are we going to call that? Uh, inspiration, grace? I, I don't really know, but there is an element of mystery and of the inexplicable there. Mm. Indian society certainly needed him. I think the world actually needed him and needs him. And mm. so he came. Yeah. He came. He appeared. Right. That's what I was going to say. It sounds like he. There, it wasn't as if he was saying, oh, I agree with you know, the the writings of so-and-so who was maybe 30 years ahead of him and, and less well-known or something, and he was adopting that. But he seems to have said, I'm open to all ideas that I can absorb and and be keep an open mind to all of it and take it all in and then think it through and and sort of radiate it back out. Yeah, and again, I love the way you put that. You know, to characterize him as a sponge that is such a perfect way to think about C. Subramanian Bharati. Yeah. He was that. His curiosity about things, absolutely endless. And, you know, he satisfied that by doing as much traveling and talking to people as he could, and also by reading as much as he could. And everything that he read about and discovered in his experience, he then wrote about and re-radiated that, as you put it, or re-expressed that again in a new form and put it back into circulation. So I think Sponge is a, is a terrific descriptor of, of who he was and what he was about. Yeah. Now, I said I had a surprise for the listeners. We've been saving this. I don't know if you've been saving this, but I have been. So there, in his uh, views of women as uh, sort of cultural caretakers, he extended that to his own writings. And if I understand it correctly, he kind mm -hmm. of handed his poetry off to his wife, first of all, to to take care of and and maybe this was part of the music was he I, I would imagine he was teaching her the songs as well and yeah. she handed it off to her daughter 
who handed it off to her mm-hmm. daughter, who handed it off to her daughter, which is Bharati's great-granddaughter, who is you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> it's wonderful. What a wonderful chain of events. And, and just uh, that, that I, I feel so privileged and, and honored to be talking to you. <laughs> Well, again, I just love the way that you put that. I I have to really minimize my role there, but I I wouldn't at all do that in respect of the other women involved, you know, whose role simply can't be overstated in all of this. Yeah. So when, when, so I'll maybe just narrate a little bit of the backstory there because it is just so fascinating and moving, I think. You know, when Bharati was married, he was a young, very young man. I mean, he was really just a boy. He was 15 years old. Mm. And his, future wife, Telema, was seven. Mm. And this was, you know, this was one of the practices of the day, the child marriage, about which, by the way, Bharati was very much against it and ended up writing a lot explaining why that should not be happening. But in his his young life, you know, that was the norm at the time, and and that's what happened. So Telema, if you can imagine, she didn't really have any sort of formal education or anything like that. She became his wife while she was still a child. So the great thing is she got her education through him and through his writing. And he undertook to educate her in that way. So Mm -hmm. while he was alive, he created this tradition where he would teach her his poems. He would sing them to her and teach her not only the poem, but also his way of singing it as soon as it was composed. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is the tradition that you're referring to. So Chalama then taught those uh, songs to her daughters. In fact, Tangamal, her elder daughter, was also around while a lot of this was happening. You know, she was already grown up by the time her father passed away. And so Mm. she learned from her father and mother. And then Bharati had another daughter who was younger who also learned, but I think played a little bit less of a pivotal role because she was so much younger. But Tangamal definitely took on the mantle of this responsibility and this family treasure and she then went ahead and taught the songs, the poems as she knew them to her children, including notably my mother, who learned as much as she could from her mother and grandmother, who brought her up as well. And then she went on to do an academic specialization in Bharati's works for her PhD, and she was the first person to do that. Mm. So my mother really was a, a living embodiment of all of Bharati's poetry. There's simply no other way to express that. And she had this dual advantage of having studied it both as part of the family oral tradition and as part of academic studies for her PhD. So that's the tradition that that you're referring to. And considering that Bharati passed away in 1921, that was still well before the era of Indian independence, you know, which didn't arrive until 1947. And there was, I think, a lot of real risk surrounding his literary legacy because the situation of the country was in disarray. You know, he was effectively a a rebel, a fugitive from justice in many senses at that point. And something had to be done to preserve his literary legacy. And that was the task that Chalama ended up stepping up to, you know, in spite of all the disadvantages that she faced as a widow, as a, a woman with no real formal education, no kind of social empowerment of any kind in that day. You know, she still stepped up to the challenge and did what was necessary to preserve the works, to publish them as far as she could, and to hand them down then to the generations that were coming. Mm. Um, it, it's interesting, too, because 
Bharati's life has been popularized in a lot of ways in South India, and in fact, in India as a whole. And Chelama is often spoken about as a sort of a typical housewife of the time. You know, if such a person exists, I, I'm even a bit skeptical about that, but I definitely know that that was not who Chelama was. You know, she was considered by Bharati to be his partner in his national undertakings and in his poetic undertakings. He actually calls her the the chief of his poetry. Kavidai Talaivi is the term in, in uh, Tamil. The chief, the leader of his poetry is what he calls her. Mm. And my mother has told me a story about the two of them that when Bharati was going to lead a procession one day, uh, his wife was very nervous and said to him, you know, I'm afraid that you may get hurt or you may get killed leading these anti-British demonstrations. And apparently Bharati said to her, don't worry at all. If anything happens to me, don't be worried in the slightest. What you should do in that case is you come out, you take the banner that I'm carrying now and you lead the procession. Mm. And that was how he saw his wife. Wow. And now, 100 years later, you have taken up the mantle as the caretaker and are uh, working uh, with the, the good folks at Penguin to bring out this book. Mm-hmm. So The Coming Age is his collected English writings. So I would imagine he has, you know, his relationship with English. On the one hand, it was the language of the oppressors. On the other hand, it was kind of a lingua franca at the time, and he was so open to ideas and, and writers and, and thinkers and so on. And he wrote in English, what do we find in this collection and how does it fit in with the rest of his works? Yeah, I, I don't know if he actually saw English as the language of the oppressor. You know, that's such an interesting point right yeah. there that you bring up, because I think that's where his sort of visionary quality comes into play a bit. You know, he definitely engaged very passionately with the struggles for dominance, linguistic dominance in the subcontinent. So he spoke up very strongly against English education, displacing Tamil education in South India, for example, and and on, you know, political issues of the day like that. But I think his relationship with the language was something much larger and and much more far-seeing and and also spiritual in nature, for lack Mm. of a better word. He he ultimately, Mm -hmm. at, at some fundamental level, he was a poet who who had a great fascination with languages and with poetry. And he saw all humanity as being one. So his problem was not with the British for being British, if I can put it that way. Uh, or right, right. British. You know, his, his problem was with what he saw as a delusion that the British themselves were under, that they needed to be a conquering nation, asserting their authority over India and over other countries. He saw that as being wrong. But as far as the language and the culture went, he saw British language and culture as being one of the uh, important and beautiful cultures of the human race. Mm -hmm. At that level, I think he not only read and enjoyed English poetry, he fell in love with English poetry Mm -hmm. and particularly the poetry of the Romantic poets. No surprise, because that was his temperament, you know, the impetuous, freedom-loving, firebrand temperament. Right. And... He, uh, in fact, he was so fond of the poetry of Shelley that he adopted. I was going to say Shelley. <laughs> yeah, Shelley, Shelley Dawson was his pen name. Dawson means 
uh, the follower, the servant of uh, Shelley. That's a long tradition in Indian poetry that poets and writers often adopt this name. They call themselves Dasan. Bharati had his own follower, a great poet who came after him called Bharati Dasan. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and Bharati started out as Shelley Dasan. So uh, that to me doesn't sound like a, a man who saw English as a language of oppression. In fact, he saw it as a language of liberation at a certain level. Yeah. Right. So it's a, it's a fascinating thing to to contemplate. And I think that then takes us into the question of the content of the book, The Coming Age, where mm-hmm. uh, we see him using English in all kinds of different ways. Sometimes a very instrumental use of English, like in those essays where he talks about the status of Tamil as a language for education and argues very convincingly that it should be recognized as such as a language on par with English and other European languages for the purposes of a modern education. So uh, he's got essays where he talks about his experiences during the uh, British oppression, how he had to flee the oppression, how cases were being built against him. Uh, you know, so all these sort of very instrumental uses of the language. But then we also see that he gets into other terrain and he writes beautiful philosophical essays engaging both with key concepts of Indian culture and with key concepts in modern Western philosophy. So, for example, he's got one called Rasa, the key word of Indian culture, where he talks about this whole notion of Rasa or the um, essentially the emotional color of life, which he argues is the key to Indian culture, perceiving the emotional life as being an important part of human experience and explaining that in a very systematic way. So that's that particular essay. He's got another one called The Siddha and the Superman, where he talks about the Indian ideal of the Siddha, what is a great man or a great person, because it it could be a woman as well, uh, in the Indian culture, versus, let's say, the Nietzschean idea of the Superman, which, let's remember, was contemporary for Bharati. Right. You know, he gets into these really interesting explorations, and you wonder, who is he writing for? And I often think that he was writing for two kinds of audience there. You know, first of all, he was writing for the sort of intellectually liberated people of his own times, you know, the people who wanted to know about Indian culture and Indian perspectives and integrate that into their understanding of the world of culture. But perhaps even more importantly, I think he was writing for us. Mm. You know, he was, he was writing for a post-colonial audience where we wouldn't be thinking anymore about India as, an inferior place being dominated by Europeans, but as one more of the world's diverse array of rich and interesting cultures that people would want to know about and learn about. In fact, Indian culture is a mother culture for much of the world's culture, as as we now know, you know, as historical research has shown. And so he wanted to be able to share his knowledge of that culture and consider what it signified in the context of the world of different cultures. So I think he was writing for a post-colonial audience uh, in those essays, in those poetic translations, even in his journals, uh, Mm. where he chose to use the English language and experiments with it and writes beautifully and I think enjoys his facility as a polyglot and as a poet. You know, I think that's the thing about a poet learning and writing in another language. Not only does he know the rules of the language and have the capacity to write grammatically correct English, but 
he also has a, a kind of a, an insight onto the language. He has a feel for it. And that's what we get when we read those other essays, the essays about philosophy, the translations that he tried to do of his own and other people's poetry. Some of them absolutely spectacular, beautiful pieces of work. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably my favorite parts of the book. Well, this, it, it just gave me chills when you said that he may have been writing this for us, in a sense. And it, I'm glad that this book is here. I hope it introduces people. It certainly has opened my eyes to this wonderful figure. Uh, Professor Mira Sundara Rajan, thank you so much for bringing Bharati's, Bharati's work to light and for joining me today on the History of Literature. It's been an absolute pleasure, Jack. Thank you so much. And I hope your readers will get curious and learn more about Bharati and read a little bit of what he wrote in English. Hmm. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Professor Mira Sundara Rajan for joining us. Wasn't that a nice surprise? She is the heir to greatness. A very fine steward and advocate for her legendary great-grandfather. We all owe her a debt of gratitude, especially me, for coming here for such a wise and warm conversation. The book is called The Coming Age, published by Penguin. You can also learn more by checking out Mira's podcast called Bharati 100, launched in honor of the 100th anniversary of Bharati's death. 38 years old far too young. We will be back next week with a special Valentine's Day episode talking to USA Today best-selling author Mimi Matthews. And I think we'll have Margot Livesey again for a little more on her reading of Boswell's Life of Johnson. And soon we will have an expert on fashion in literature and perhaps a little Goethe. Mike was here to talk about great literary terms. That's in the can, so to speak. And now, now if time for me to crawl back into my can the pod where I live when not on the pod it's a crummy little place tin walls, a few nail holes so I can breathe they threw some grass down here so I could eat but guess what people, those holes let in the light too and so I can read, I bet my captor never thought of that when he plucked me from a leaf and crammed me in here with his little fist, wants me Wants me to breathe. He's keeping me alive for some reason. Maybe it's just to haul me out to record these podcasts so he can sell some ads. Or maybe he's hoping I'll light up like a firefly. Or maybe it's just a confused kind of love where affection bleeds over into a desire for possession. Understandable, perhaps, but not ideal. If you're the canny and not the Canner. Maybe Goethe will help me figure all this out. Or Nietzsche. Or Freud. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>